found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true Tried in the fire, still good in this hour. Our prayers to be a blessing. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Pod King Podcast. I'm your co-host, Donald King. Glad to have Brother Chris Lee with us again today. Glad to be here. Brother Don, it's always good to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it's written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it's translated into English in the King James Version. This is Friday. April the 22nd, Systematic Theology number 10, Soteriology Special Edition number 26. In our last study, we finished the fourth and last chapter of Jonah. We then looked at the many themes that run through it. There are numerous things of interest in the short account of this most intriguing prophet. Was he a prophet or a rebel? Was he a man of God or a disobedient sinner? One thing is certain. If God could use a man like Jonah, he can certainly use people like us. In today's episode, Brother Donnie and Brother Chris Lee look at part two of soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. They explain propitiation, expiation, substitution, adoption, and justification, to name a few things. They also define the terms salvation, conversion, regeneration, and being born again. This is a must-listen-to episode. Now for the teaching of God's Word and the lesson for today. I'll turn it to the host of the Pot King podcast. We're going to be looking at how we are saved today. And we left you in the last episode of Systematic Theology talking about true repentance. And true repentance will always lead you to redemption. When man turns away from sin and then turns to God, he is delivered. He's delivered from sin. He's delivered from the world. He's delivered from the devil. He's delivered from other gods, false gods. He's delivered even from himself. Paul talking about in Romans 7 and 24, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Redemption is the purchasing of one unto freedom. Picture a slave that's owned by someone and then someone else offered to purchase the slave. But the one who now purchased the slave sets the slave free by the price that was paid. This is exactly what God has done for man through Jesus Christ. We were bound in sin. Jesus bought us with a great price. He purchased us with his blood and then he set us free. To redeem something means to go and to buy something back. This implies that the thing was already owned by God and then owned by someone else, but God paid the price of redemption and bought them back. God created man for his glory, according to Isaiah 43 and 7. Even everyone that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory. I have formed him, yea, I have made him. Despite knowing this, man has sinned and come under the authority and ownership of Satan. Jesus' death paid the price of redemption, which is how God bought us back. There are several terms for the work that soteriology does for man. Some refer to it as salvation, some conversion, some say it's regeneration, some call it being born again. It is salvation, so we refer to it as being saved. That's true, for we are saved right now. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he is your Lord and Savior, you're saved right now. But you're also in the process of being saved 
and we will ultimately be saved at the end. For he that endures to the end, the same shall be saved, according to Matthew 24 and 13. When you get saved, you do get a personal Savior, but you don't get your own personal Jesus, who's like a genie or a wizard that you snap your finger and he does whatever you want him to do. You must follow him and be his servant. Religion is man seeking God. Salvation, which is what I mean when I say Christianity a lot of times, I'm referring to a true salvation experience through Christ, and that's what Christianity is. Salvation or Christianity is God-seeking man. In Hebrew, there's an interesting word, and it's called yasha. Yasha means to rescue, to help, to defend, to make something free, to preserve it, to bring it to safety, and to save. We spend our whole lives, according to the Hebrew thinking people, seeking for Yasha because it's the answer to everything. Our word salvation comes from the word Yasha, and from this word proceeds the word Yeshua that you may be much more familiar with. Yeshua literally means salvation. The Lord is known as Yeshua, and that makes this very interesting because Yasha comes from Yeshua. That means salvation comes from Christ. The Lord is our rescuer. The Lord is our helper. The Lord is our defender. The Lord is the one who makes us free. The Lord is the one who brings us to safety. The Lord is my preserver, and the Lord is my Savior. When you translate the Hebrew word Yeshua into Greek, it becomes Ashuas. Ashuas means, when you translate it into English, it becomes Jesus. So technically, Jesus is Yeshua from the Hebrew. This tells us that Jesus is everything you will ever need. He's everything you will ever have sought in this life. You'll find your fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ. So the question is today, how are we saved? I believe the Bible teaches us that we're saved by grace through faith. The question would be, whose grace? Whose grace is it? Faith in whom? I believe Ephesians chapter 2 answers both of these questions. I'm going to read several verses through Ephesians 2, so just, just bear with this reading. Maybe if you follow along with your Bible or you hear this podcast and you decide to go through Ephesians 2 on your own devotion time, I challenge you to get a piece of paper and a pen and read through Ephesians chapter 2. And every time you see where a work of man contributes to salvation, why don't you write that down? And everywhere you see where God, by grace and faith, works in your life, why don't you write that down? And you'll see the overwhelming majority is under the God column. Ephesians chapter 2, and you hath he quickened. So who does the quickening? It's God. Who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Then verse 7, he gives us the reason that in the ages to come he might shew the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us, 
through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So how is man saved? By grace. Verses 1 through verse 8 give us this great portrait of God's grace, that unmerited favor of God. We're saved by grace. It's his grace. But then we're also saved through faith. Faith in whom? Well, you got to keep going and you'll see that. Verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time ye were without Christ. Verse 13, but now in Christ. Verse 14, for he, the he is Christ, for he is our peace. So we're saved by grace and that not of ourselves. And that grace is through faith in Jesus Christ only. Amen. So what about the term being born again? It's a new birth for a man who has already been born once. The Greek word that you find in John chapter 3, anothen, anothen signals that the new birth comes from the one who gave you the natural birth. Matter of fact, let me read you John 3 and 3. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, anothen, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He repeats this in verse 7, Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again, anothen. You got to be born again. So this word anothen signals to us that the one who gave you the first birth is the same one that gives you the second birth. Jesus took them out as far as to Bethany, and he breathed on them, and he said unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. In other words, he told them it's going to be just like God did in the beginning. God gave breath of life to Adam in the garden. God gives you this new breath of life we call salvation. The original creation was being reenacted all over again. The same one who breathed life into the body of clay in the garden is the same one who breathed life and new life into the disciples. When the Spirit of God comes into you, that's when you are born again. Your spirit is brought back from death unto life. A.W. Tozer made a statement one time, and he said, You can be sure that the Holy Ghost never enters a man and lets him live like he did. The new birth makes a difference in man. It's a spiritual birth. It frees you from spiritual death as well. Here's a few little nifty cliches that you may have heard before, but they're so very true. Man that is born once dies twice. Man who is born twice only dies once. We call this being born again. If you want to know more about being born again, read Jesus' exchange with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Man who receives God's deliverer converts from the serving of the God of this world to serve the only one true God. This is known as conversion. This is why a lot of people refer to being saved as, hey, I got converted back in 1983. They're talking about their conversion. They left one thing and came to another. They changed the state of what they were. This is called conversion. It's called being born again. It's called salvation, and it's also called regeneration because man is born in a totally unregenerate state. 
that means he's not indwelt by God nor his spirit. Man who receives God is indwelt with the spirit of God, and thus he is called regenerated. God gave us life when we were born, so he generated our life. When he gives us abundant life and eternal life, therefore we say we are regenerated. We have been given another form of life, which is greater than the first. Now, all of this leads us to a couple of things. We have studied how the process of man coming to God worked in the last episode of Systematic Theology. We looked at man going through condemnation and conviction, and it leads him to repentance and all of those things, and it starts with the progressive revelation of God to man. Now, that leads us to some things on God's aspect of how he begins to do the work. Salvation is accomplished through a thing called propitiation. This is the act of appeasing God or appeasing the demands of the law of God. And only Jesus Christ could do this. Amen. Propitiation is atonement. It means to make amends for, to extinguish the guilt incurred by, or to put an end to. For a concise overview of exactly what the gospel is, we'd have to look in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. The Bible said, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified, one of my favorite words in all the Bible, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That takes us back to Ephesians 2, by grace through faith. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God, the whom is Christ, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare, that's that justification, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. First John chapter 2 says, and he, speaking of Jesus, he is the propitiation. He is the one, he is the only propitiation that can be had between God and man. First John chapter 4 said it like this, herein is love, not that we love God. That's not the, the true meaning of love. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's the true meaning of love, that God, the Holy One that inhabits eternity, how could he love me? How could he love you? The Bible said he sent forth his son to be the propitiation. So many people get stumped when examining God and trying to outwit God in their own mental capacity. And they ask questions like, how can God send anyone to hell? And they get so stumped right there. I think the question we should ask is, how can God save anybody? How can he who is so holy and undefiled, so separate from sinners, so separate from sin, so just and upright and righteous. How can God ever even consider saving the likes of me and you? Rather than getting stumped that people go to hell, why don't we return and give God glory for his unspeakable gift, grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that he sent him to be the propitiation for our sins? The heart of man, it seems, is so bound to take some kind of glory for their work of salvation. I believe that's part of what happens there. Propitiation comes through God through salvation and justification. This act includes avoiding divine punishment 
and it's the bringing of divine favor in the place of the anger and dissatisfaction of God. It literally means to satisfy. It satisfies God, for it's a satisfactory payment for sin. Now, salvation, we also know, is accomplished through what is called expiation. Expiation is when a death takes place in place of another. We all know that this death is the death of Christ on the cross. This kind of death is one that eliminates or wipes out sin. This is done in order to restore relationship between the sinner and the holy God. Expiation is simply another term for atonement. It's also another term for forgiveness. It's the making amends of a wrongdoing. It is the technical term that describes how man is forgiven of his sins. Salvation not only comes through propitiation and expiation, but salvation is accomplished by a substitutionary atonement. Most people don't value a substitution very much at all. I want you to think about a substitute or substitution. In school, most substitute teachers are harassed, tormented, and not liked by the students. Most people, they don't like substitutes for sugar or many of the other products that substitute things that you really like more so. One of the greatest things, though, that has ever happened in history was a substitution. If Jesus would not have taken our place, every one of us would be bound for hell right now, no matter what. So to me, substitutionary atonement is one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible, and it's one of the greatest things about salvation. Believe it or not, there's a growing movement among our churches that do not believe in substitutionary atonement of any sorts. I'm going to go over a few things, read you a few scriptures, and I believe between what I have to say and what Brother Chris will be saying today, I believe that it will be an indefensible position to say that you don't believe in substitutionary atonement. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? For us. He died in our place. Not just that he died because of us, he died for us. His whole purpose of death was to take our place. If he took your place, that's a substitutionary atonement. Ever since the beginning of time, God has always provided a substitutionary atonement for man. God provided a substitute for the ones guilty of sin from the very beginning. He's always done this, that death might be avoided. God kills animals and covers, atones for the sin of Adam and Eve. Abel brought the Lord a blood sacrifice for his sins. God tells Abraham to sacrifice his own son, Isaac, but in the process, he provided a ram instead. Joseph was done wrong by his brothers, and when he was assumed to be dead, his brothers had killed a lamb to shed its blood, to put upon his coat, to cover for their own sin. In the time of Moses, God gave them the Passover lamb to be sacrificed so that the Jewish firstborns could be spared. As soon as the children of Israel came up out of Egypt, God gave Moses the law at Mount Sinai. In that law, God gave them the priesthood, which concerned their sins and their forgiveness. The sacrifices were offered as a substitute for the people as forgiveness for their sins. So, should it surprise us that when God provided for our sins, ultimately, 
that Jesus would come to save mankind from judgment and death by being our substitute in death? I wonder if the priest and the chief priest ever realized that throughout those hundreds of years, they were only rehearsing the sacrifice of the Messiah with those lambs. The whole idea of a substitutionary atonement speaks of one dying so another can go free. Really quick, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 18, the Bible said, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I mean, if you can read the Bible and not see substitutionary atonement, you need to sue your brain for non-support. The just for the unjust. Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, he hath tasted death for every man. Now, Isaiah chapter 53. I mean, this this here, Isaiah 53, is such a powerful chapter. I mean, this is the proof text, one of the many proof texts for substitutionary atonement. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, listen at this. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on Christ the iniquity of every man. Substitutionary atonement is very plain, very obvious in the Bible. As Brother Donnie read to us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 or verse 11, I can't recall right off, but said, and we also joy in God. We joy in God because we've received the atonement, the substitutionary atonement by Christ. That means to boast or to vaunt. You're looking for a good reason to get excited. I just gave you one. The fact that Jesus Christ was your substitutionary atoner, that you don't have to bear the sin and the penalty of your own sin, but he bore it on the cross, and from that, we make our boast in God. We just came through the Easter season, and the Easter season is a celebration of the Passover. In the Passover, we see the lamb, and we see it being slain. The significance of the blood, we see all of these things, And the whole action that was done there was to allow sinners to go free. The lamb dies that you go free. We see the substitute for sin and the expiation, the forgiveness of those sins are offered. There had to be a spotless lamb. Jesus lived a sinless life as the lamb of God. The lamb had to be slain. Jesus willingly gave his life for our sins. The blood has a special significance for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. Those who the blood was shed for went free. Those who Jesus saves by his blood goes free from the bondage of sin and eternity in hell. 
The lamb was a substitute for the man who should have been executed. Jesus took our place dying that we might live. This brings us to the topic of adoption. Verses such as Galatians 4, Ephesians 1, Romans 8 all give us the perfect picture of what adoption is. Adoption, by definition, is the placing as a son, not the making of a son, but rather the placing of the son. This topic causes much confusion. How can a man be both born and adopted into the same family? The Jews considered a child to be an adult in their early teens. At that point, the father would declare publicly that he was adopting his own natural-born son. The Romans seem to have a similar custom. At the age of 14, the son is placed on a platform by his father, and the father would make a statement to the effect that this son is now gaining access to all the privileges and responsibilities of an adult. The Christian is both natural-born and adopted into the family of God. This, of course, brings great privilege, but also tremendous responsibility. We should view salvation as an adoption. Jesus has fulfilled everything concerning lambs and sheep, according to what the scriptures tell us. So it becomes more than just a metaphor we use or a way of just saying something. Shepherds have learned through the years that to get a ewe to accept an orphan sheep, you must bathe the new sheep in the blood of her dead lamb that has already died because she smells the blood of her baby on this other orphaned sheep. She will take it in and begin to care for it. This is what God has done for us in order for us to be accepted in Christ, or as the Ephesians says, accepted in the beloved. When God looks at us, he doesn't see an orphan lamb, but he sees and smells the blood of his precious lamb, and he recognizes us as his own. We read about this in Romans 8 and 15 through 18, that we've received the spirit of adoption. Let me read that for you quickly. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Because of our adoption, we can cry, Abba, Father. We can truly call God our Father because we have been adopted. He is our God. He is our shepherd, and we are his lambs. Now, why does the Bible refer to God receiving us as an adoption? Wouldn't it mean more if we were considered an actual birth child, a biological child? Not really, because when a person has a birth child, you must take whatever comes. You can't choose whether it's a boy or a girl. You can't choose whether it's brown-headed, red-headed, or black-headed, blonde-headed. Or it, it, you can't pick any of those things. You take what you get. When a person adopts a child, a lot of times they do get to choose who and what they are getting. Adoption speaks of a definite choice by the adopter. People don't adopt children they don't want. They adopt children they do want. This shows us that God truly does want us in his family. People might give birth to a child they never wanted, but it's very much different with an adoption. So salvation is accompanied by many things, but one of those things that are the most important, we're going to look at here as we close out this study today. This is the topic and doctrine of justification. 
Romans 5 and 1, therefore being justified by faith, a finished work. Man is justified. Justification is a judicial act of God, whereby he declares the guilty sinner to be righteous and free from guilt and punishment. Romans 4 and 5, but to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, in our land, we have men called judges. They wear black robes. They're the most powerful people in the land. When they make a verdict, who can overturn it? Well, God is called the judge of all the earth. He is the most powerful. He is supreme. And if he declares a man righteous, who has the authority to overturn that verdict? No one. The very same judge of all the earth that said all have sinned and come short. The same judge that passes condemnation upon all men for all have sinned. And no one can get out from under that condemnation. No one can get away from that. But the same judge that declares all men guilty declares those that believe in Jesus Christ to be innocent. No one can overthrow overthrow the condemnation. No one can overthrow the justification. If you, by grace through faith, have been saved by Jesus Christ and have faith in Jesus Christ, you have been declared just by the judge of the whole earth, and that is God the Father. The one who has been wronged dictates the terms of justification. Justification, as I said, is a judicial term. In a trial, it is the judge who determines what method of reconciliation will be. The criminal has no right to decide what his punishment will be or what he needs to do to make restitution. We try to interject our own wisdom and help God out. God does not need our help. God did not need my help to condemn me. God does not need my help to justify me. In the same sense, it is God who determines what a person must do in order to make restitution. The sinner has no right to decide his own plan of salvation. It is God who has been sinned against, not us. Therefore, it is God's right to prescribe the method of justification. Isn't it ironic for centuries man has tried to determine how he can get to heaven when he dies? He is convinced God's plan is too easy. I'll just be honest. I struggled with this for many years in my own Christian life. I felt like it was too easy. The things that I read in Romans made it too easy. I had to help God out. I had to do this. I had to do that. But when you recognize the gospel and recognize the sovereignty of God, it's not that it's too easy. It's just full of grace. But it really doesn't matter how good a man's ideas are, how poor a man thinks God's plan appears to be. Man has sinned against a holy God who has determined that that man can be justified only when he accepts Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. Now, Jesus is already Lord. We don't make him Lord. He's already Lord. We just recognize his Lordship, and we come under the authority of his Lordship. Man's justification is not based upon his own merits, but it's based upon the merits of another. Man in his natural condition cannot stand in God's presence nor enter heaven. Apart from Jesus Christ, the sinner is without hope. All my hope is in Christ. Jesus Christ is the advocate. He's the lawyer. We know justification, as I said, is a judicial act, a judicial term. We see the courtroom setting. Christ is our lawyer or our advocate. 
as well as our substitute, when we are arrayed in the robe of Christ Jesus' righteousness, then and only then can we stand before a holy God. The Bible teaches us that we can stand before God unblameable, unreprovable, unrebukable. Now, I know Chris Lee better than anyone else in the world. And I know that in Chris Lee, there are things that are reprovable. I know that God can look at my life and find things that's rebukable. But the joy of salvation is this. I have put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and his righteousness has covered all of my unrighteousness. He is my advocate, my substitute. And when I stand before the judge of all the earth, he sees he who he is well pleased in. By grace through faith in Christ, that judge of all the earth has declared me to be justified. And if he says I'm justified, it doesn't matter who else says I'm not. I'm justified because God, the judge of all the earth, declared that I was just. Being set free from sin and being made right with God is the description of the doctrine of justification, just as Brother Chris has just defined for us. The man who can't help himself must be made right with God somehow. This process of being made right with God is known as justification because God, who is just, is the one who does the work. Let me read you a few scriptures. Romans 2 and 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law are justified. Romans 3 and 24. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 28 of the same chapter, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Galatians 2 and 16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Galatians 3 and 11, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for the just shall live by faith. Justification is to be declared right with God through man's faith in Jesus Christ. We're declared right even though we aren't righteous in ourselves. Justify and make right means the same thing. It's the same word in the Greek. The same Greek word is used to make the words justification and righteous. It means to be acquitted. It means to be vindicated by God. Some people preach it only means to be pardoned, but that means that you were guilty and given a second chance. To be justified is to be as if you've never sinned before. The law is not relaxed nor set aside. It has been fulfilled by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This allows me, the sinner, to have the advantages and rewards of perfect obedience to the law, even though I am not perfect and obedient. What is truly Christ's perfect obedience is put in our stead. The law was not given to justify sinners, but to expose their sin. This shows our need for Jesus. Justification is actually our forgiveness by God and allowing Christ to stand in our place. If you take away the substitutionary atonement, you have no justification. It's the remission of sin's penalty. It is a blessing of divine favor. Justification is the gift of God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus' death on the cross, there's no justification. There's no forgiveness of sin. According to 1 Peter 3 and 18 through 21 and Romans 4 and 25, the just died for the unjust and he was resurrected to justify us. 
If Jesus is not risen from the dead, we're still lost in our sins because forgiveness and justification can come no other way. Justification gives us peace with God and access into his presence, as Romans 5, 1 and 2 says. We are justified by his blood, and therefore we're saved from wrath, according to Romans 5 and 9. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who is he that condemneth but Jesus Christ our Lord? Romans 8 and 31 through 34 tells us this. The only one who could condemn us chose not to so we could be justified. Through justification, we're made heirs unto eternal life, according to Titus 3 and 7. God had a plan. He called us. In that plan, he justified us. In that same plan, he made us right. Those that he made right, he glorified them, according to Romans 8 and 30. A greater description of justification is Romans 8 and 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. According to James 2 and 24, justification leads a man to good works. Because you've been justified, that man who was once an awful sinner, a man who was useless and worthless, is now a man who is doing good works. Why? Because Christ is in you and he's living the life for you and his righteousness is standing up in you where sin once dwelt. And now that same man who did so much evil will do good. The good that Christians do is evidence that they've been justified. Paul taught that man is justified by faith before God. James taught that a man is justified through his works before men. Now, these are two different angles. Faith is the root of our justification, while good works is the fruit of our justification. When you are right with God, your actions are right, and therefore you will be righteous because the righteousness of Christ has come into your life. All right, brothers, another wonderful lesson today. I'd like to commend both of you on your studies and your teaching of God's Word. Friends, if you have a Bible question or a comment about this podcast, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com, dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. There might not be another chance for me I wanna lay down weights that beset me So I can keep my soul feeling free I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord For the gospel's sake Where I go, you've already been there Cause I'm walking in Jesus' name Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name Going where he bid me go I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to He's a keeper of my soul I have learned to lean on Jesus And cast on him my ever concern I'm looking for a home in glory Where no sorrow will ever